The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hello and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Frances Steed-Sellers, a senior writer here at the Washington Post. And today I'm delighted to be joined by Maisa Rojas, who is Chile's environment minister. Minister Rojas, a very warm welcome to Washington Post Live. Thank you so much. I'm very excited to have this conversation with you just a couple of days ahead of COP28. Well, it's an exciting moment. And I could have said Dr. Rojas, of course, because you have a doctorate in climate (laughs) science. And I wonder what that deep scientific knowledge, how that affects your approach to the kind of high level negotiations you'll be going into in a few days at 28. That's a good question. I guess it it is not only that I have a science background that I have worked in climate science for a very long time. Um, I participated in both the fifth and the sixth assessment report of the IPCC. And and this means that I, I really have a quite deep understanding of what the Intergovernment Panel on Climate Change is telling us about the urgency of acting. Uh, and in this sense, I'm, I have very clear uh, where we have to to go to, where we have to be in a short uh, in, in a short time. That there's not much time. Uh, that the window of opportunity is closing very rapidly if we want to uh, maintain the temperature of the planet at 1.5 degrees of warming as we agreed a couple of years ago when we all signed the Paris Agreement. So so I guess uh, with with that knowledge, I understand the urgency and I'm here to help uh, that countries can agree politically to take the actions so that we can use that uh, small window of opportunity that we still have. Yeah, and I guess we have to remember that we're at COP28, we've been at this for for 28 years, and one of the big uh, accomplishments, or or what was thought to be a big accomplishment of COP27 a year ago, was this loss and damage fund, which was meant to help poorer countries that were suffering most. Can you tell us where that stands? Yeah, that's a very good question. Let me maybe very briefly tell you a bit what happened last year, because before the COP started, we were not even sure if loss and damage was going to be on the table of conversation. So the the first sort of huddle that we had to overcome was, okay, we're going to sit at the table and we're going to discuss this. So that was the first, I would say, sort of victory that after many years of the most vulnerable countries wanting to discuss this, that everyone said, okay, let's discuss this. And then once we, we sat at the table to discuss this where everyone recognized, okay, there's a momentum growing where everyone recognizes that this needs to be discussed. There were two positions. One was that they were saying, okay, this is important, but there are so many questions still open. We need more time. 
and and another set of countries saying, let's hear in Shalman Sheikh have a political statement to create this fund and sort out the details afterwards. And that was the position that finally uh, won. Uh, so uh, the, there was a decision to uh, to create a fund and to sort out the details afterwards. So, and that's what happened during this year. There was a transitional committee that met a couple of times, five times throughout the year. And a couple of weeks ago, uh, they they presented a consensus uh, report on the operation of that fund. And that is going to be handed in to the, uh, to the parties at COP28 for them to accept. Um, and so the good news is that we took the decision last year, we have sorted out the details and we need the parties, all the governments now to accept uh, the report from the transition committee to then make this fund operational. But is it all good news? Are, are there still some major points of contention outstanding? Uh, I mean, the, the the report at the end of the day, I mean, there, there were many discussions and that we needed to have another extra meeting to sort them out. But but there is a report now that says, OK, uh, we are going to uh, create a fund. It's uh, interim uh place will be the world bank the world bank will have to make a number of transformations uh, for this to work there will be a board uh, uh, etc uh, it will be on a voluntary basis uh, but 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 the thing but but we have a place where this fund uh, is going to be working uh, and that we have a place now uh, we hope that we will get also pledges of developed countries uh, to to put in very sort of set in very simple terms uh, to put in some money into that fund. So, Minister Rojas, one of the the very striking things about this fund and also the climate crisis in general is how it highlights global inequality. And I know this is an issue you've talked about a lot and thought about, but explain to us a little bit why this is so important, why some countries are suffering and seem to, you know, bear more, more of the brunt and be less able to afford to deal with it than others. Yes. So many times you, when you talk about climate change, uh, you describe climate change as an amplifier of inequalities. Why? Be because uh, what is, is happening is that it will increase uh, the hazards, the climate change hazards. So it's not just that the world is warming, right? But extreme events, those that have the most impact in our lives, uh, livelihoods, infrastructure, etc., uh, those are increasing in intensity, in duration, and in magnitude. This is something that the, again, the IPCC has told us there was a special chapter even on extreme events. We know sort of the, the underlying um, physical understanding of that. We have seen it, how this is already occurring. And uh, we have seen it in particular this year. Um, you know, by the, by the end of the year, or in, at the beginning of January, when we will have the data 
of uh, the warming of this year, we're very, very sure that this is going to be the hottest year on record. And not only mm -hmm. that, we will be very, very close to a 1.5 degree of warming. Remember that this is our sort of ambitious uh, goal of the Paris Agreement. Um, so it's going to be a very symbolic uh, year in that sense of for the first time that we might be reaching very close to that limit that we put ourselves in the Paris Agreement. And we have seen extreme events, I mean, all over the place mm. last week. Just last week, we saw two consecutive days that surpassed two degrees of warming. So as scientists all around the world are saying, we are really entering uncharted territory in terms of climate. And for that, countries need to be prepared. And countries that are more vulnerable um, tend to be less prepared, tend to have less institutional arrangements in place that they can um, address uh, these these extreme events and this is why climate change with the intensification of extreme events is an amplifier of risk and amplifier hence of inequalities so i want to ask you about another symbol that has reared its head this year as we approach cop 28 and that's the location in one of the largest oil producing countries of the world does that matter it matters to protesters does it actually matter um, I mean, the, the, the convention and the almost 200 countries of the convention are divided in, in five regions and the COP presidency uh, rotates into those five regions. So this means that this year the region is Asia and this is why uh, the COP is in, in, the, uh, in the Emirates. And, and so in, in that sense, it's, it's part of the rules of how the convention works. Remember that once, and I can say this because Chile had this role uh, uh, three cops back, right? COP25, the presidency was in Chile. The role of the presidency is, is to help to that all parties can uh, come together and find consensus to have an ambitious uh, outcome um, over the the goals that we have in the Paris Agreement and in the Convention, and in that sense, the role of the presidency is to put sort of aside their national interests, but to make sure that the process has um, success, and for that they have to bring together everyone. So in that sense, uh, that's the role that the. Uh, the, the current presence has, and, and I hope they're taking it, and I have seen it as well, that they're taking this very seriously. So let me ask you about one of the, the, the kinds of arrangements people have talked about, a sort of political deal where countries would give up on polluting fossil fuels and instead turn to solar and wind and clean energy. Mm. How optimistic are you about that kind of arrangement, particularly given the lack of enforcement mechanism, as I understand it? Okay, so again, going back to the science, right. we know what is happening, but we also know very well, and we have known for a long time, how we solve this. And, and this is very simple. The cause of this is mainly that we are burning fossil fuels. Hence, what's the solution? We have to stop burning fossil fuels, right? Uh, 
that's that is the ultimate solution and for that we need to produce energy from other sources and renewable energies are there um, they are becoming increasingly cheaper, uh, increasingly available. Um, in the case of Chile, for example, we have a climate change law where we have, by law, our commitment to be carbon neutral at the latest by 2050, but also resilience to the adverse effects of climate change. And much of that work is occurring in our renewable energy uh, transition. Now, what is important is we need to make a transition where we uh, produce energy with renewable, but we stop producing energy with fossil fuels. So mm -hmm. when there's an agreement that we have to increase, and there's all this talk about uh, tripling renewable energy by 2030 and doubling energy efficiency, this has to come hand in hand with the phase out of fossil fuels. Otherwise, we're just increasing the use of energy in the world. Right. And the important thing is that we replace one with the other. Right. We all have more and more need of energy, it seems, right, around the world, growing population with more requirements. Yeah, I, of course, that, that is very important, but it's it should not be an adding to the energy that we today produce with fossil fuels, but we need to replace them. And especially in the energy sector, uh, we know that we can do that by increasing renewable energy like, like solar, like wind and others. Let's talk a little bit about the world's biggest emitters, um, the United States and China. Um, talks were renewed on climate issues very recently uh, between the two leaders, uh, who won't, I think, uh, be appearing at COP. We know that of Biden. Um, mm. what, what is your impression now moving ahead of how big a role they play and what influence mm. they can have on uh, climate going ahead? Yeah, I think this is very important. We have to remember that the COP, the conference of the parties, is the, the place where decisions of the convention and the Paris Agreement are made. Okay, so in that sense, it's very important. But the convention and the Paris Agreement work by consensus. This means that you have to uh, to be able to agree on almost 200 countries. And as you can imagine, uh, this is a difficult process. I mean, I don't know, I have three kids at home and having to uh, negotiate with them is already complicated, right? <laughs> Everyone that has <laughs> this minister needs to uh, get not usually consensus by a majority in our parliament <laughs> and that's complicated. So imagine how this happens uh, with the negotiation of almost 200 countries. So that's why that process is sometimes, it seems slow, it's sometimes frustrating. But what happens at COPs as well is that there's all other world happening at the same time. And countries can have agreements bilaterally, like the one you just mentioned between the US and China. There can be pledges where you voluntarily um, um, sign on, etc. And in all of that is, I think, as important. Both processes, uh, we we need to. I mean, both processes are important, are relevant, and and should work in parallel. So, so for example, an announcement of the U.S. and China being the biggest emitter is, of course, very relevant and can really uh, move the needle in into the right direction. 
I want to ask you and take you back to the science again and talk to me a little bit more about the 1.5 degrees, which you've mentioned. Mm. Why is it such a tipping point? Okay, for many different reasons. And remember that the, the Paris Agreement says that the, the, the goal of the Paris Agreement is to limit warming uh, much below two degrees and uh, pursue efforts to limit it at 1.5. This was back in 2015. And it was in particular the, the, the small islands that pushed for 1.5, because remember that uh, we, when we talk about that the planet is warming, this means that uh, the ice caps in the polar regions are melting and that contributes to sea level rise. So one of the biggest impacts and the most irreversible impacts of the warming is that sea level rises. And that's an existential threat if you live on a small island. So it was them in particular that said we need to put 1.5 also in the into the Paris Agreement. And what they, the parties did afterwards, they asked the IPCC, well, you know, we really want to know if is a world of two degrees of warming or 1.5 degrees of warming, is that a different world or not? And back in 2018, the IPCC produced a report on 1.5 degrees of warming and the answer was yes. Uh, there are many impacts that we avoid by limiting warming to 1.5. And since, since then, uh, we've really agreed that uh, it is just too high of a risk uh, to allow the world to warm two degrees. And then the, the ERA-6, the sixth assessment report of the working group two then reinforced uh, the findings of that special report. And, and that's why we're talking. So it is sea level rise. It is the effect on the cryosphere. We have the cryosphere being uh, all the parts on the planet where we have frozen ice. Um, and, and a number of, of it is extreme events. It is food security. It is access to water. It's all those consequences that the warming have uh, where we have there's a scientific consensus that two degrees is just too high. It's just going to be too expensive uh, to adapt to those consequences and th that we therefore really need to limit the warming to 1.5. So we're edging awfully close to 1.5 right now. I think are we at 1.2 or something like that. And I'm wondering about coming up with these sort of hard numbers and what that does for messaging, because I could imagine meeting 1.5 and I could imagine people sort of throwing their hands in the air and say, well, that one's gone and giving up on the on the battle. Talk to me a little bit about the importance to you of setting these standards and the danger of missing them. Hmm. Um, I mean, we talked earlier about inequalities and a bit about sort of climate justice and understanding that uh, that. Uh, uh, that the effects are going to be felt more by more vulnerable people, more vulnerable community, uh, coastal communities, small islands uh, where sea level basically means if there exist or non or do not exist mm -hmm. anymore. Um, mm -hmm. uh, all of that um, loss and damage. Remember that loss and damage refers to the irreversible effects of climate change. When we last year celebrated that 
we had a decision on creating this fund of loss and damage. Um, we also said very clearly, this is actually, uh, we, we shouldn't be celebrating this because this means that we have failed. We have failed to address the causes of climate change, which are our burning of fossil fuels. And we have failed to reduce those emissions uh, quick enough so that we can limit uh, the warming and, and, and thus those consequences uh, do not exist. So um, it is going to be more and more expensive the further the warming goes. Um, and it's going to be basically, um, uh, no one is going to be paying being able to pay for this. Let me give an example in the case of, of Chile. I, I mentioned that we have a law that has that addresses both mitigation and adaptation. I would say that uh, for the first time this year, the economic impact of uh, climate change was really felt in our economy. We had in February uh, enormous forest fires. That, um, that covered a bit less than a third of the country, enormous forest fire. And we had the whole country um, addressing them. We got lots of international help as well. And then this was in February. In June, we had enormous flooding. Much of the flooding was in the same regions that had been affected by the forest fires before. And those floods finished. And two months later, we had an, again floods in the same region. So mm. we have regions in our country that lived forest fires and two enormous floods in the same year. Uh, it is just absolutely impossible to adapt to that and to reconstruct that. And so I, I would say, so this is a country where, I mean, we have earthquake, we have tsunamis, we have uh, mm. uh, volcanic eruptions. So we are quite used to having important geological hazards and that we need to reconstruct afterwards. But this level of hazards um, related to climate change, I don't think we had had before. And it, it really felt like, well, climate change is here. It's now, it's occurring. Tell me a little bit more, and I know you've written about this, about the impact on biodiversity in Chile. Yeah. Um, Maybe I can I can give an example of something very recent that we haven't spoken about. I I had the privilege uh, last week to be together with uh, our president Gabriel Boric and the Secretary General of the United Nations Antonio Guterres in Antarctica. Uh, the Secretary General um, was for the first time in Antarctica, and he was there just before COP. And and the idea was to um, see firsthand the impacts of climate change in that very remote uh, continent, right? I mean, no one can say that uh, that this is a consequence of things that are happening in Antarctica, but it, this is the, the pollution, the global pollution through the emissions of greenhouse gases that is having an important effect of Antarctica. And this year, one of the very extreme events that we have seen is a, an enormous reduction of sea ice in Antarctica. So when you don't have sea ice, um, there is uh, one of the 
very famous penguin uh, species, uh, the emperor penguin, that that require that, that do all the, the nesting uh, in, um, uh, over the sea ice. So if there's no sea ice, there's a very, very serious threat to the survival. Um, indications say like 80 or 90 percent of this species of penguin is at risk uh, by the loss of sea ice. Um, so that's one of an example. But also we have uh, krill, krill with mm -hmm. this small uh, organisms that grow under the sea ice. So when there's no sea ice, there's no krill. And penguins um, use uh, uh, krill as, as food, but also whales. So you see there's a, a whole chain of impact of what is happening in Antarctica to biodiversity. And of course, not just to biodiversity, but just to give uh, two examples of that. You know, governments clearly can't do this alone, and I'd love to get your views on what private companies mm. can do to help mm. uh, in this very dire circumstance you're describing. Mm. Yeah, indeed. Um, so the the convention and the Paris Agreement is about parties, right? That's the that's the mm. language of the convention. That are the the governments uh, that. Uh, that, that, that signed the convention, that signed the Paris Agreement, that ratify it, uh, etc. And hence, they have the responsibility. But in, and in that sense, this is also uh, part of the of the Paris Agreement. Um, the people that designed the Paris Agreement realized that, of course, there's a whole world out there that also needs to be uh, involved. And they call them in, in the language of the convention, non-party uh, stakeholders. So that, that's that's everyone else. And um, so these are um, um, sub-national governments, the municipalities, the governments, the regions that some countries have. It's the private sector uh, and it's universities as well and civil society in general. So, so all of that is, is also work at in the convention with the non-party stakeholders and there's a whole program that work with them in in the case of our our law our climate change law in chile uh, we we also um so the responsibilities to government to design for example mitigation plants and adaptation plants but they need to work then with the private sector to actually implement them um, so they they play a very important role um and we have to see how this is done uh, although there's no binding agreement unless a country has a binding agreement with their private sector uh, that these plants uh, are made with the private sector that these are credible um and that they help us to to really advance in the um, in the goals that whether countries are responsible to. So very, very important role. A last question. I really want to ask you about messaging. We have huge protest movements, many of them driven by young people who feel enormous urgency around this issue. And also mm -hmm. we know there's misinformation that gets spread on the internet. There are a lot of people who throw their hands up. What in your view can be done uh, to help spread this key message and where do young people and 
other minorities and women fit into making this message heard around the world. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think let me first talk about the role of women. I think uh, oh, it is. That, I think that they play two very important roles, being a woman as well and a woman scientist. I I, I feel very passionate about this, and we we have talked about the the fact that vulnerable people are uh, more exposed, have have a, a higher risk of the impacts of climate change, and women usually are more vulnerable as well. Women have a less of a voice in decision making. So you can think about women of being uh, uh, more vulnerable and being sort of victims of climate change. And, and this is why it is important to have a gender perspective when you design and implement instruments to address climate change. So, so, so that's an important part. Mm. But then the other thing is um, not only that, but uh, I think we also play a very important role in the solution. Uh, culturally mm. and historically, women have been in many of our societies in charge of the caretaking of society, caretaking of children, caretaking of, of elderly. Um, and at the end of the day, what we are talking about here, this is a relationships crisis. Uh, climate change and, and global warming is a symptom of a bad relationship that we have with nature, but also among ourselves. And, and so we have to, to, to change uh, the way that we, that, we, that we work together to be more collaborative than, than, more, com than more competitive. So I think there women can also play an important role. And this was also something that we learned very clearly in Antarctica. Antarctica is a continent of very extreme situation where collaboration is important. That's a wonderful message you're giving us about the importance of women. And I'm afraid we're out of time, but I'm gonna take that message with me as we go on. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com. I live by routines, but I especially love my same-day delivery routine with Shipped. And my shopper knows this about me. When Sunday rolls around and I place my weekly stock-up order, Joe sends texts from the aisles. Wilted lettuce? Nah, -uh. hard pass. Deal on my favorite sparkling water? Whew, grab two. Fresh flowers just because? Hmm, sounds like a delightful idea. If you love routines that work for you, get shipped same-day delivery. Shipped. Delight in every delivery. Learn more at ship.com slash high.